Good morning. Did everybody have a great fall break? Yeah? Good. Uh, I hope that um, as we're back and we're walking around and you see the, the colors changing, um, don't, don't forget to see God's hand in the beauty that's taking place out there. Uh, it's my privilege to introduce our speaker this morning, Juan Pena, uh, emigrated to the U.S. from Colombia as a teenager. He graduated high school and college in Massachusetts and worked as a mechanical engineer before being called to full-time vocational ministry. His passion for cross-cultural ministry led he and his wife to Denver, Colorado, where he currently serves as the, as the executive director for the Cross Purpose Center for Urban Leadership, and he serves as the pastor of Providence Bible Church. He is married to Courtney, and he has four small boys. So we will pray for him, and we will welcome him to Covenant College. So a couple of things before I get started. Uh, first of all, I was telling Grant over breakfast this morning that the worst thing you can do to a Latino is to give him like a time limit of how much he has to speak. And then Cynthia just told me that we need to be done by 11.35. So that means I have, I have five less minutes than I thought. So I'm really stressed out right now. Uh, when I prepare sermons for my congregation, I just prepare them and then I just Preach it. So I never have to worry about time. Sometimes it can be a half hour or an hour and nobody really cares. So, but I do know you have classes and stuff, so we will get done. I am committed to being done on time. Um, and then number two, I just want to say um, I bring greetings from several Covenant graduates that are in our staff. Uh, Rachel Dance, Joel Friesen, I don't know if you guys know them, but they're in our staff. And uh, they send greetings. And then Cynthia Lopez uh, is right here. She also graduated. She came with me. So uh, thank you for producing great, great graduates that are truly blessing Northeast Denver. And you guys are like everywhere. Um, in uh, this summer in July, I was in Massachusetts visiting family. And I was in a beach called Good Harbor, hanging out with my boys, my family. And then uh, I see a girl coming down the beach with a Covenant t-shirt. And uh, it was Morgan over here. Uh, where is she? I don't know where you are, Morgan. Oh, there you are. Okay, yeah. So anyways, we had a great conversation, and uh, I shared with her that I was going to be here today. And um, yeah, you guys are everywhere. So all right. So if you want to open your Bibles, I don't know if you have a Bible, but you can open them to Mark chapter 12. <clears throat> so today, you guys are going to get like a residue um, sermon. So we as a church are, have been going through the book of Mark, uh, and we've managed to spend the last 18 months in and out of it. Um, and when we were uh, in chapter 11 and 12, we just, I had read the book of Mark several times, but just somehow by going really slow through it, chapter 11 and 12 really began to come alive for me. Um, and we have a, a team of pastors. We share the pulpit a lot. So for me, I was, I was assigned Mark chapter 12, 18 through uh, 27. And for me, usually that portion of Scripture is the passage where the Sadducees came to Jesus and asked them a question. It was like kind of a trick question uh, about a woman that had, and this is probably a fictional thing, but it was a woman that had married uh, 
a guy, the guy died, then he remarried with the guy's brother, and basically that happened seven times. I don't know if you remember that story, right? And basically Jesus says in the end, you know, well, the Sadducees are asking Jesus, like, okay, so who is, he, who is this woman married to? And Jesus' answer, the way I recollected it was, well, it doesn't really matter because in, in the new kingdom there is no marriage. And so that's, like my, that's what I thought that passage was all about. So when it was assigned to me, I got to tell you, my, my heart just sunk because I was like, oh, man, I got to preach about like, and get excited about not being married in heaven to my wife. Who I, who I just love so much, I cannot imagine not being married to her, but Jesus here is saying that it doesn't matter because we're not going to be married, and how am I going get, to get excited about that? And so that was my heart going into sermon prep for this particular passage. And what I want to share with you is something that I discovered from there. So I'm not going to go through the whole passage because I, I just want to take out one little piece that God really spoke to me about that I, I think it, it, uh, I want to I share with you. Um, but anyways, if, if you go to chapter 11, we see that Jesus is now triumphantly entering Jerusalem, right? And if you know anything about the book of Mark, that's kind of like a big turning point of the book. And then Jesus goes right from there to the temple, and that's the passage where he clears out the temple, right? He sees that uh, the whole temple has become a business, and there's people selling all kinds of stuff, making money, and he just loses that and flips the tables and everything, right? And then right after that, um, basically every political or religious leader, a group of leaders, block of leaders, challenged Jesus' authority. And I don't think this is by mistake. In those two chapters, there's a lot of stuff happening there. Um, and by the time we finish with chapter 12, Jesus has shredded all of those leaders, like, the, their arguments are completely shredded. Um, but when we get to this particular passage, that uh, Mark chapter 12, 18, it says there that this group, there's a group of people called the Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection. So, right away when I was doing sermon prep for this, I started going like, okay, who are the Sadducees? And, you know, I graduated from seminary with an MDiv, and I'm sure my professors probably talked about the Sadducees, but to be honest, like, I was, like, looking at this going, like, who are these people? Like, I, what are they, what are they, and they don't believe in the resurrection. What is that all about? And so I started doing a little bit of, like, digging into it, and when you, when you start researching them, part of the reason why we actually don't talk about them too much is because in the Gospels, they're only mentioned, like, two or three times. Um, and then if you go to the book of Acts, they're mentioned twice. So that's it. That's all we have from them. They're like this group that exists, but they're really not seen at all. And so I started going like, okay, what, what's, what is it about these people that would lead them to not believe in the resurrection? And so uh, as I started looking, uh, I discovered that they actually were some of the most powerful people in all of Israel. They economically controlled everything. The, the Romans had given them authority to actually collect taxes, so they, collect all, they, they, they controlled all that. And on top of that, they also controlled all the business that was happening around the temple. So if you, now, now all of a sudden you start going back and like Jesus flipping tables, right? That's actually directly affecting the Sadducees because they controlled all the business. They made all the money around uh, selling animals and all kinds of stuff, right? So 
they were incredibly powerful economically. They were among the most wealthy, privileged families in Israel. Okay? So think about, like, you know, here in America, we, you know, there's a lot of conversation about the one percenters, right? Picture the, the Sadducees are like the one percenters. You don't see them, but they control everything. That's them. Now, second of all, politically, they were incredibly powerful as well. They actually controlled the Sanhedrin. Hopefully I pronounced that correctly. My Spanish gets in the way there. So Sanhedrin or something? Sanhedrin? Um, but the Sanhedrin was, at that time, like picture putting together the Supreme Court, Congress, and Senate. That's kind of like the, the, the Sanhedrin controlled all that. They had the, the equivalent power of all three of those uh, political legislative bodies. And so the Sanhedrin was made up of 71 individuals. Most of them were Sadducees. And the chief priest was the person that, that really controlled the whole thing. And wouldn't you know it, I discovered that the chief priest was always a, a Sadducee. And they were directly appointed by the Roman governor. Okay? So, so, so the picture starts to get a little clearer as to who this group of people uh, was. So if you can imagine, the Sadducees are really the only group of uh, Jewish leaders that is actually allowed to go to the, the Roman table and actually have a voice. Nobody else in Israel has that. Talk about privilege, right? And so, so, so naturally, the Sadducees would, it's in their best interest, right, to keep relationships with the Romans uh, not to rock the boat. Um, and uh, so, so anyway, so that's kind of like the background about who the Sadducees were. So the question that I asked myself then was, why did the Sadducees, it says there in verse 18, not believe in the resurrection? Because when we look at the Old Testament, it's indisputable that all throughout the Old Testament, there's references to this Messiah that's coming, that's going to resurrect all things, that's going to renew all things back to their, 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 their creative order. Uh, if you remember in the book of Ezekiel, right, chapter 37, we have the, the Valley of the Bones. One of the most uh, known prophecies for, for a Jew in Jesus' time is the Valley of the Bones. And what is that prophecy all about? Here is this, the, the, the prophet Ezekiel goes into this valley, sees all these bones, and God says to them, to him, do you think that I have power to resurrect these bones? And so Ezekiel says, yes, you're, you're, yeah, you're Yahweh, you're God, of course you can resurrect these bones. So, Jesus, so, so God says, prophesy that these bones would come to life. And so Ezekiel prophesies. And, and in, in that whole story, uh, he describes how how tendons started attaching to the bones, and then all of a sudden flesh started uh, covering the bones, and then skin. And so now all these, all these bodies were scattered all over the valley, but they were still dead. And God says, now prophesy that breath enters them. Almost like going back to Genesis 1, right? And so Ezekiel prophesies, and, and the breath of God resurrects these dead bodies, these dead bones. And, and God says to Ezekiel, this is to show you these this, this dead bones represent Israel. And someday 
I will resurrect Israel. Someday they will return to their land. They will receive everything that I have promised them. There's a coming resurrection, right? And so, so that would be a, a clear prophecy, a clear teaching in the Old Testament that Sadducees clearly would have known, right, about the resurrection. And then if you, if you go through the book of uh, Isaiah, really all the prophets, and even Job, every time that the resurrection is mentioned in the Old Testament, it's in the context or in the backdrop of suffering, of oppression, of exile, okay? Every single time. So, uh, ultimately, if you, if you look at the Old Testament, the resurrection is truly revolutionary. The, revol- the, the, the resurrection is truly a th- about a theology of hope and liberation from oppression, which is exactly where the Jews found themselves at the time of Jesus. Now, here's where I believe Christianity is completely different than all other religions. Pretty much every religion in the world has some kind of a, a, a theology or an idea about a heaven, a place of, called heaven, right? But depending on, or, or, uh, on your social status, it really would take two different ways in which you probably viewed that. So if you were a, a king or a ruler, right, you were, you were enjoying lots of comfort and riches and wealth. If you were one of them, you would work really hard to please the gods so that when you died, you would actually be able to retain all that stuff, right? So, so think of like um, the pharaohs in ancient Egypt, right? They, 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 would, they would create all these pyramids and, and temples, and they would start all their stuff, believing that that was pleasing to their gods so that when they died, they would, have, they would, they would be able to maintain all that. But if you were a slave, if you were oppressed, if you were poor, then this idea of heaven was really more of a promise. It's a, it's a promise that you're going to be able to, in the end, escape suffering, that you're going to escape this evil world, and you're going to enter a new form of paradise. Okay? So, so most religions have one of those two views of what heaven is going to be like. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only religion that offers the promise of a resurrection. It offers, offers this idea that, that God is not done with its original project. That this creation that he created that was marred by sin is not just going to be crumpled up and thrown away and a whole new thing is going to be started. But it's this idea that everything will be made right. Every injustice is going to be made right. This is why, and this is why I love Covenant, you, out of all schools that I have visited, you, I believe, get this more than anybody else. Because you guys drip all these ideas into every single one of your classes. And I've sat in some of your classes, and, and I hear it every time. And so, so, so this is why we as Christians, we oppose every distortion and promote renewal in every area of creation. Now, can you see why this idea of the resurrection might have been a little scary for the Sadducees? 
because they actually had a lot to lose. If the people actually believe that this is, this is real, that there's a real hope of renewing all things, that, that in someday God is going to send a Messiah that's going to restore all things, that's going to abolish and destroy all evil and all political oppressive systems, if the people really believe that, then they would create problems for the Sadducees because they're going to revolt against the Romans. Does that make sense? Can you see where I'm going with that? They had so much to lose, and so therefore, they actually changed their theology to fit their needs. Now, when we look throughout church history, we can see that every time the church controlled power, we have distorted our theology. Every time in church history, whenever the church controlled power, we have distorted the gospel. And because of time, I don't have a huge amount of time to, to, to kind of dive into it, but just to give you a couple of examples, uh, think about the Crusades, right? There was about five to seven Crusades, uh, and they were a, a response to the Muslims actually taking big chunks of Europe and controlling those big chunks. And so what happened is when the Muslims started controlling uh, those territories, commerce between the East and the West kind of trickled down to nothing. So economically, the church, the wealthy church, and the kings and the rulers, um, they actually devised this, spiritual, uh, this spiritualized military campaigns that would actually, uh, under the disguise of like, we need to open up routes for Christians to do pilgrimages back to Jerusalem, to holy sites. So therefore, anybody that gives their life, that commits to fighting the Muslims, automatically will be forgiven of their sins. And so that's kind of how they recruited millions of people to go and fight the Muslims. And as a result of this, we have 1.7 million people, it's estimated, died during these crusades. Not to count the Muslims that died. Right? Here's an example of how we distorted the gospel, how the church did that to accommodate their economic needs. You fast forward a little bit to the 1500s. In the 1500s now, you have the church in Europe telling European countries that everywhere they went in the world, if they discovered a new land that was not governed by Christians, that that land actually is allowed to be discovered. And so this is why you have vast sections of Africa that were, quote-unquote, discovered and colonized under the guise that, oh, this, 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 these Africans are, don't know Jesus, so therefore they are subhuman, and so we either have to convert them to Jesus, or if they're not, then we've got to kill them or enslave them. This is all under the guise of this theology, this doctrine of discovery that the church made up. And then... Columbus, uh, just last weekend, we celebrated Columbus weekend, right? What we're truly celebrating here is a, is a guy that took this gospel of discovery, this, this doctrine of discovery, and did the same thing here in America. And so he discovered the Indians and either enslaved them or killed them if they didn't come to Jesus, right? So, so all throughout history, we have these examples of how we as the church, when we have power, we corrupt the gospel. Now, 
What does this have to say to us today? I think we need to acknowledge that the church here in America is made up of Christians that for the first time have had the most wealth and the most power in the history of humanity. Have you ever thought about that? Today, we, the average Christian in America has the most wealth and the most power in the history of humanity. So, I think it would be foolish for us to think that we are also, that we are immune to what has happened through our church history, what, what has happened here to the Sadducees. You know, we read the Sadducees here and they believe there's no resurrection. We're like, oh my God, how, how stupid are they? Right? We, we would be foolish, and I won't have a huge amount of time today to like unpack what this means, but I just really want to leave you with this. Just don't assume that you don't have any blind spots. And I just want to share two quick potential blind spots that I see uh, as an immigrant, if I can speak to you guys. Uh, one, the first one is this idea that we have actually reduced the gospel. It's an evangelical church. We have reduced the gospel to just a little bit more than just personal salvation. You know, when I was your age and I was at UMass Engineering School, uh, I actually came to Christ my junior year. Um, that's all I understood. I, I, I just, I, I got gloriously saved. I believed that I was a sinner. God radically saved me. He found me. He pursued me. He radically made me a new, a new creation. And then I just felt like all I have to do is just go and tell all my classmates and friends about Jesus and get into prayer, prayer of salvation. And that was the extent of the gospel to me. That's all I understood the gospel to be. I was that guy that uh, when, when I was married to, uh, in the first couple of years of marriage, uh, we would have dinner, and then my wife would say, uh, hey, honey, can you take the garbage out? And I would just grab the garbage, walk out, out of our apartment complex, and next thing I know, I would meet a neighbor, and four hours later, I'm still holding the garbage bag, and I'm, like, sharing Jesus with them, like, apologetically, like, talking about philosophy and trying to argue people into heaven. I was like that dude. I was, I was here for four hours. I was just like, this person needs to be argued into heaven. I have all the right thinking. That's what I thought. That's what I believed. And in many ways, I, I feel like we as a church, we have simplified the gospel, reduced it to just that. But we all know that the gospel is much more than that. We all know that the gospel that Jesus preached, if you look at Luke chapter 4 and you, and you read the entire gospels, is this idea of the gospel of the kingdom. And so, so, so the gospel of atonement is absolutely crucial and important. That is the entrance into the kingdom. But that is not the gospel in its fullness. The full gospel is a gospel that says the gospel of Jesus Christ affects every single thing. And so I should be concerned about my, the state of my soul of my, of my neighbor, but also it should care about them holistically. And so this leads me to my second point. And my second point is that if we reduce the gospel to just personal salvation, we have then separated the gospel from the poor. And I believe this is what's happening in America. If you look at who Jesus hung out with. Who did he spend his life, his time with? 
It was people that were socially excluded, right? Like the lepers. People that were religiously marginalized. Prostitutes. Tax collectors. People that were culturally oppressed. Women. Children. Samaritans. People that were socially dependent. The widow. The orphan and the fatherless. The immigrant. And people that were physically handicapped the blind, the mute, the deaf. These are the people that Jesus gave his life for, that he, that he, he reoriented his entire being to be with them. You, you read uh, in the epistles, I, I cannot find a, a church in the New Testament that was separated from the poor. As a matter of fact, most of the churches were poor and oppressed. But you don't see one example of a church that is completely wealthy and has all the powers. Not like the Sanhedrin church. That doesn't exist in the New Testament. But because we have separated the gospel and we have made it just personal salvation, the minute we did that, now all of a sudden, uh, uniting the church around, meeting the needs of the poor, it becomes, becomes optional or obsolete. Because after all, it's all about just salvation. It's about uh, leading people in prayers. And so... For me, over the last eight years, um, and again, I don't have time to really unpack it all, but I've, I've, I've really given my life to try to make sense of the gospel in a holistic way. And so eight years ago, we started a church called Providence Bible Church, and the whole premise of this church is to just be a church in a community that is given radical glimpses of the gospel uh, throughout the community. And so what we have done is we have said we are going to strategically place our church in one of the most diverse communities in all of Colorado that has the rich and the poor, that has different ethnic groups, and we believe that the gospel is going to bring these groups together because these groups, together can, these groups cannot be separated. And so as a result of all this, we have been able to uh, start several nonprofits that have really reached into the community and um, just this last weekend, I was running some numbers about the impact that we have had over the last four years. We have done a pilot program to help our neighbors exit poverty. Um, and we've worked with 31 different neighbors. And one of the things that we have seen is that as a result of this four years, these 31 individuals have generated about $1.6 million in wealth, all in our neighborhood. And that doesn't count government, government benefits and all that. That's, if you add all that up, you're probably talking about $2.5 million. Why have we done all those things? It's because we truly believe that the gospel demands it. That, that this is the fullness of the gospel that we can display. So I'm out of time. Uh, but what I want to share, I just want to like leave you with this thought. You are getting an incredible education here. Those of you who are seniors, you're going to graduate with a theology that I, it took me until I was in my mid-30s to really fully begin to understand. Nobody ever sat down with me to, to teach me about these things. You're going to, I, I know you're going to graduate with that. But what I want to say to you is there's a big difference between knowing it here and actually reorienting your life to live this out. And so I just want to say don't waste your time here. Use these four years that you're here to truly seek God's face about how he wants you to live. I mean, whatever career he has called you to do, 
Let me pray for you. Father, in many ways, I know that what has been said here is probably nothing new or a new revelation. We acknowledge, Spirit, that you, uh, everybody in this room, you have been working on. Everyone, every, everyone in here has your spirit. And so for some, maybe today you're just dropping a seed. For some, that seed's already been dropped and you've been watering that seed. For others, that seed's about to sprung up, spring up. It doesn't matter, Father, where each individual is here, Father. I ask you by your spirit that you would empower my brothers and sisters here to carefully acknowledge the privilege that they have of being American Christians, the power that they have, the wealth that they have, that you would allow them to realize that because of that privilege, we are prone to having blind spots. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would, you would point us out and that you would empower these students to be able to make the right decisions for them to live out the full implications of the gospel, whatever it is that you're calling them to, to live. In your name we pray, amen.